Let's pray together. O oh, Lord, most holy, we recognize that, God, you are holy other than we are. There's no point in our lives where we will become as you are. Father, for you are God and we're not. Lord, and yet as we look through a glass darkly now, we anticipate a day where we will see you. Lord, we will be in your presence. We will no longer have the veil of fallen flesh to separate us. Father, we thank you that in this life you have given us your grace. You have given us your spirit to live within your people as a deposit and a guarantee for our inheritance. Lord, and we have your word, which is a light to our feet, a lamp for our path so that we might hide it in our hearts and therefore not sin against you. Lord, as we turn to this word now, a word which has directed our time of worship thus far, we pray that you would speak to us. Lord, we pray that your spirit would open our hearts' eyes to see wonderful truths in your law, that we might find delight in them. Lord, and be led to live them out in obedience to you, in faith, so that you might be glorified by our actions. Lord, and we pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you have your Bibles, would you open them with me to the book of James in chapter 2. James chapter 2, and in a moment we're going to be reading together from verse 1. However, as you're finding James 2, I'd like to share a story to introduce the subject that is our author's focus in the verses that we'll be reading together. As I was growing up, I, I played a lot of tennis. My dad and I would practice as often as we were able, as my mom would allow, which meant we practiced almost every evening, and even when it wasn't raining. Sometimes we would even play and make great memories in the downpour. I have several fond memories of playing while the rain was just pouring, and the court was so waterlogged that the ball wouldn't even bounce. It literally would skip off the surface like when you throw rocks out onto a lake, just Absolutely crazy. Great memories. And so tennis, if you played it, is a fantastic game. It, it, it's one that requires very little to play other than skill. You don't need a lot of people. You don't need a lot of equipment. You don't need fields or fancy shoes. All you need in order to play tennis is a ball, a racket net, and an opponent. And so such minimalist requirements, I believe, is what made tennis such a popular sport where I grew up, where people had very little. And so while soccer may have been the, the touted pastime, national pastime of all those who played. I believe as a child, tennis was where we as a nation saw our greatest success. And so I love tennis. I still, still play tennis. And as I was growing up, I played a lot of tennis tournaments. I played a lot of school matches. And as one participated in these different events, you came to know your other competitors. And there were so many, only so many in my area that were in my age group. And so it didn't take long for me to become familiar with most of these guys. And as you can imagine, while we remained competitors, we, I, we also developed friendships. Now, some of those friendships act, exceeded the boundaries of the sport as we also went to the same schools and we spent more time together than that which we'd share on the court. But there were others where, you know, that was about as much as you had in terms of interaction with one another. Those two or three sets that you battled out to win. And I had a number of friends in this sport. Most of them shared my interests and had a similar background. And so it was unusual to meet someone new. It was really a rarity. But on one occasion, I ran into another young man whose parents, like my own, were American. And we instantly 
instantly hit it off. This guy had some sweet sneakers. He had a sweet tennis racket, top of the line. And so it didn't take long for us to enjoy one another's company. And we were playing this tournament together. And so we made a point of trying to find time in between our matches just to hang out. Now, at the same time as I met this young guy, I met this other man who, if you can say it fairly, was the antithesis, if you will, of my American friend. This guy came from the sticks. He didn't even have shoes, to be fair. He didn't. And the racket that he used looked like he pulled it out of a dumpster. And I'm sorry to say that my initial sentiments towards this young man were wholly other than those felt towards my well-to-do buddy. I loved the guy with the gear. I mean, I assumed that he had to be an amazing tennis player because of the stuff that he had, his shoes, his rackets. You had to be good to have the kinds of things that this guy, while on the other one, I mean, he was obviously a beginner because he barely had a racket in his hands. Now, to my recollection, I don't believe that I said or behaved in a rude manner towards the man with no gear, but I know in my mind that I thought it. He, he, just, he just didn't look like he measured up. He didn't have what I held to be a value, and therefore he just wasn't worth my time, or at least not as much time as I was willing to afford the other guy. I was partial to the guy who was like me. And have you ever experienced that? You know, an instance where you found yourself drawn to or put off by someone based upon their appearance? Well, I hung out with this guy, the wealth, wealthy man, for the entire term, and I expected him to dominate this thing, you know, and, and as it turned out, he, he really wasn't all that good. I mean, he looked the part, but when it came down to it, that was about as close as he came to being an actual tennis player. The other guy, on the other hand, well, over the course of the years to come, I'd end up playing him over and over, often finding myself on the losing end of our battles, and so by the end of this tournament, I, I had learned a valuable lesson. It's one that I have continued to learn, unfortunately, over the course of my life. It's a lesson that's captured well by the idiom that I'm sure we're all familiar with. You don't judge a book by its cover. That's right. And I don't know about you, but I, I have struggled. I am struggling, and I believe I will struggle with this, this, this tendency to show favoritism. And so, with that said, let me direct our attention back to James, chapter 2 and verse 1. It's our text for today, which if you have an NIV, our translators are very helpfully titled, Favoritism Forbidden. Favoritism forbidden. James 2 verse 1. Let me invite you to follow along as I read for us this morning. James writes, My brothers, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but you say to the poor man, you stand there, or... Sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? But you've insulted the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are slandering the noble name of him to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in the scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, don't murder. If you do not commit adultery, but you do commit murder, you've become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy 
will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. May God bless the public reading of His Word. Church, I find it so so telling and reassuring that here in chapter 2, our author turns his attention to the issue of favoritism or partiality. And I find it telling because don't forget, James here is writing to believers. This is to the church that's scattered among the nations. So apparently, in addition to the trials which we saw in chapter 1 and verses 2 and 3, the trials which they were experiencing from without, these brothers and sisters also were battling temptations from within. They weren't immune to the divisive threat posed by difference. And I find this telling. But I also find it reassuring because don't we face this same struggle? Don't we battle for unity? The glorious gospel atmosphere that we enjoy together this morning shouldn't be taken for granted. It shouldn't. The love we feel, the peace that we exhibit, they haven't just magically materialized. No. As you well know, we fought hard for truth to bring that which is in the shadows out into the light, to be transparent. We've had hard conversations together. we spent much time in prayer seeking God's grace and forgiveness over past failures, and we still struggle, don't we? We still struggle with favoritism, and we live in a world that is marked or more accurately, I believe, scarred by it. So what help may we draw from this text? And I believe that James begins by offering us the admonition The admonition, verse 1, My brothers, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. Or as Bob Newhart said, stop it. Don't do it. If you have an ESV, it reads, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith. The NASB, it offers, My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. While the King James Renders verse 1, my brethren, have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with respect of persons. And there are three things that are driving this first verse here in chapter 2. The the Christian's faith or belief, the object of said faith, who is Jesus, and then the attitude of partiality or of personal favoritism. And for James, our author, people who have faith in Christ ought not show favoritism. And so let me say that again. For James, as we begin, our author People who have faith in Christ ought not show favoritism. Now, I I would hope, trust, that such an admonition stands to reason for us today. Unfortunately, this was obviously not the case for James' original readers. If you were with us, you may recall last week when we examined verses 19 through 27, James addressed those who consider themselves to be religious, and he went on to explain at the very end of chapter 1 how those, or how one's control of one's tongue revealed one's faith's authenticity, or lack thereof. So here in chapter 2, I believe that James is further clarifying the nature of genuine faith as being in the Lord Jesus Christ and practically evidenced by impartiality. In other words, if one's faith is fixed in Christ, then the authenticity test will be how you deal with others who are different. Specifically for James, different in regards to riches and race, as we'll see. And so this seems to stand to reason, right? The truth that we're all created equal and that we ought to treat one another as such. And, and if there were ever a people, we would imagine, who would ex- we expect to exhibit this form of unity amidst their diversity, surely we would think it to be the church, right? And yet if you remember from your high school history, the church has often been the site of the most frightening displays of favoritism. Why? 
And I believe the answer is tied to the concerns that we've seen James writing to address. The sad reality that there are many who, while considering themselves to be religious, to be godly, have only listened to the word. They haven't done what it said. They've, they've looked into the mirror of God's word and they've immediately forgotten what it revealed. Instead of caring for those who are the least, the widows and the orphans, as James referenced together, we saw together last week, they've, instead they've cast them out as unworthy. These, these people, these Christians, have taken God's laws and they've employed them for personal gain. Why? Because their hearts were hard. And unfortunately, these actions weren't unique to James's original audience. If you recall, Jesus, this was his critique of the religious leaders that were more concerned with outward appearances than with the attitudes of their hearts. He described them as, as whitewashed tombs. And so James recognized people's proclivity to partiality, and so he provides his readers with this admonition. He then offers an illustration. An illustration in order to guard Against any misunderstanding, James describes exactly what he intends by this term favoritism. Beginning there in verse 2, he paints this picture, which we can all envision, can't we? You're, you're sitting in church, or preparing to worship, and then all of a sudden this new face walks in, with, with which we're unfamiliar, and without even knowing it, we all begin evaluating, don't we? And don't say that we don't. Don't say that we don't, because just by nature of being a human being, we observe things about the world that is around us, don't we? I mean, some of us notice hair, and others eyes, you know, eye color. Some of us notice shoes or suits, brands, and styles. But we all notice stuff, don't we? And men, we tend to notice certain things, and we fail to notice others. Even when we're told of the importance of remembering some things, we still can't bring ourselves to see it, even though our eyes are seeing it, right? And I'm not speaking in the abstract here. Men, how many times have your wives told you that they're going to get a haircut? Going to get a haircut, and as soon as you get home, she walks past, slows down, stops, might even spin, and then stares at you. You're laughing, ladies, you know this has happened. And she looks at you, and you look at her, and you're thinking, oh, man, what was it? What was it that I was supposed to remember? What was that that she told me she was going to do today? What was it I was supposed to remember? The whole time, you're looking at her, right? Your eyes are seeing, exactly. We all notice stuff, and that which we notice we categorize, just as James is saying. And so to this point, let me share a personal illustration. This isn't confession, so. But when Melinda and I were living in Birmingham, Elena was about two years old. We had the opportunity to go and visit her mom and dad as they were still serving as missionaries in Germany. About this time, I was working with a guy who was in the military, and so I had aspirations. I've shared this with you before, of joining the military. I was hoping at one point to possibly be a chaplain. And so I was, I was your typical, typical little boy, all things Army, only I was in my 20s. And right before we flew to Frankfurt, Melinda gave me my, my usual haircut. And so I arrived in Frankfurt freshly shorn after disembarking the plane. We had to wait for our luggage, and we had a bunch. We had packing plays, strollers, car seats. I mean, we had the works. And so we waited quite some time. And as we waited, I, was, I found myself speaking to a young man who was an officer in our nation's military. Come to find out it was his first tour to Germany. And so we had this great conversation going on while Melinda tried to take care of our two-year-old running around. And I was sad to see the conversation end. I was really, I was really getting my, my army itch scratched. And so come time our bags arrived, I was grieved to say goodbye but wished him well, collected our things, we headed for the exit, where I was promptly stopped by two very well-dressed soldiers, quickly saluted, politely welcomed me to Germany, and then asked if they could help me with my suitcases, sir. I was thrilled, thrilled for the <laughs> offer of hope. 
you know, and help and whatnot. But they obviously had mistaken me for someone else, which I thought was fantastic. And, and you know, told them where the man they likely were looking for was located and directed them. They apologized and headed off. And I just looked at Melinda and grinned. I just grinned. She told me I was being the biggest dork to stop smiling, pick up my stuff, and mule haul. Let's get to the car. But we all struggle with this kind of stereotyping, don't we, church? And this is what I believe that James was alluding to, looking at people, evaluating them based upon their appearance, and then treating them commensurate with the value that we have determined that they possess. And church, when we act in such a manner, we are discriminating, and we've become, in James's words, judges with evil thoughts. And the metric that's employed here to evidence the issue of favoritism for James, and here's his illustration, is this of wealth, this, this, this metric of riches. But I believe it also might apply to that of race. And so let me, let me show you why. That term that James uses there, which is rendered favoritism, if you want to draw a line under it or, or circle it, favoritism or, or partiality, it's also used by the Apostle Paul in his letter when he wrote to the church that was meeting in Rome. In chapter 2, interestingly enough, Paul is dealing with his readers with this issue of race and ethnicity as it relates to religion, principally between Jews and Gentiles. And Paul says to them, you're both subject to God's judgments for your sin. Verse 11, he then provides us with a reason. Why is it that they are both subject? For God does not show favoritism. The same word, the same word that is used by James in reference to riches here is employed by Paul in regards to race. And so I believe in James's illustration, if we were to go back to James 2, 2 I believe we need to heed a warning here not to allow our value of others to be determined by their riches or their race. And Emmanuel, I believe that these two issues, race and, and riches, are huge. They still color our nation's landscape. They're front and center in our current political scene and educational and economic debates. And, and while our nation's heritage is, is indeed rich, it's also one that's stained by segregation stemming from differences in these two things. Race and riches. Now, many of you, and I'm sure know, this year marks the 50th anniversary of the passing of Dr. Martin Luther King. April 4th, in 1968, was a nadir in our nation's history. Men and women of different races were so divided that they murdered a man who was seeking equality. Now, much good has come from the work of Dr. King and his associates. We've grown as a nation. We've grown and made steps as a church, but I believe we still, still remain deeply divided. And sadly could point to a number of recent instances that reveal the racial tensions that still reside in our land. Race remains a point of division, and so do riches. And tragically, there are many who simply cannot escape the system because they don't have what it takes. And not, not meaning that they don't have talent or desire, but I don't believe that they have the resources. That, that old saying, it's not what you know, but it's who you know. It still holds true, doesn't it, when it comes to jobs? Or if you want to consider the idea of riches from a different perspective, but just drive down 13. Take this afternoon and drive down 13, and you tell me that you can't see separation reflected by riches or, or the lack thereof. Our neighborhoods bear this out, don't they? Where we're afraid of, of the neighborhoods and, and, and for our neighborhoods as certain elements move in, and we'll betray these sentiments when we say things like, well, there goes the neighborhood, right? Church, we live in a day, unfortunately, where favoritism is alive and well, and I believe that the media, despite, despite their claims to simply report news, they continue to pour fuel on the fires that give rise to greater and greater displays of division. 
And yet we hear calls from, from, for national and for global unity. And, and as great as it seems to me, it appears that the situation is only deteriorating. At best, it's stagnated. So what's the answer? James warns us as believers in the Lord of glory, who is Jesus, not to show favoritism. He illustrates his concerns with regards to riches, and we've discussed how this also relates to race. So now I believe we need to see the explanation. The explanation, I want you to look back with me to James 2, verse 8. In verse 8, James writes, If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. What I believe James is doing in these two verses is, is pointing us to Christ's summative statement regarding the Christian life. And I believe this for two reasons. The first is because of his reference to this as the royal law. This royal law. And I believe that this phrase, along with the earlier reference to Christ as the glorious Lord, our glorious Lord, directs us to Jesus' answer to the question of all the commandments, which is the most important? This is a question that could only be answered by the king, the king who established these commandments. And then that's one reason. The second reason, I believe, is because James then quotes here for us Leviticus 19.18. That's love your neighbor as yourself. And that quotation reflects the very response, if you recall, that Jesus gave when he was asked that question that we mentioned. In Mark 12, it contains just one record of this interaction, this response. It's also documented in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 22. But in, in Mark's account, chapter 12, one of the teachers of the law, you may recall, comes up to, to Jesus and hearing, hearing him debating the Sadducees regarding issues concerning the law, he asks, which is the most important? And Jesus answered, the most important one is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. And so I believe for Jesus, as for James, the royal law, the law which governed Christ's kingdom and was required then of all those who dwelt therein was to love God and others. All the rest of the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, were subsumed under these two, meaning they don't cancel out God's other laws, make His command not to lie or to commit adultery or, 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 or to murder as we see later. Doesn't doesn't cancel those out. Rather, in fulfilling those two, by the nature of fulfilling those two, you will be fulfilling all the others. And so, upon hearing this response, of Jesus, this lawyer says to him, well said, well said. You're right in saying that God is one and there is no other but him. To love him with all your heart and with all your understanding, with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. To which Jesus declared, you're not far from what? The kingdom. You're not far from the kingdom of God. To live within Christ's kingdom or to be a believer in the glorious Lord Jesus Christ, as James words it in, in verse 1, requires loving our others as we love ourselves. In other words, as we've entitled this entire series, faith works. We can't claim to love God and hate our brother or sister or show favoritism to one over another because in so doing, we're denying the very faith that we espouse. Our religion, as James says, is worthless if all we have are empty words. The Apostle John described it in this way in his first letter in chapter 2. He said, we know that we have come to know him. So that's assurance of faith. 
That's, that's a guarantee, if you will, of, of citizenship in Christ's kingdom. We know that we have come to know him if we obey his commands. The man who says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth isn't in him. But if anyone obeys his word, God's love is made complete, truly made complete in him. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him, that's Jesus, must walk as he did. So James states the same truth, I believe, a little further on as we referenced a moment ago with regards to the law and in light of murdering and in light of committing adultery. Rather, where he says, if you think you can only hold one but you fail in another, you failed in it all. We can't work ourselves into right relationship with God through obedience. It begins by living in Christ who enables our obedience. And so, brothers and sisters, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are not to show favoritism. Why? Because this doesn't reflect love for neighbor. So, what then ought we do? How should we show our love for our neighbor? And James has given us an admonition. He's provided an illustration and explanation, and I believe he, he leaves us now with an exhortation. In verse 12, he writes this, Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Now, you may recall if you were with us several weeks ago when we studied chapter 1 and verse 25, we saw how James described the perfect law that gives freedom. We noted this is an, this is an odd expression because we don't typically associate law with freedom. In our postmodern 21st century culture of hyper-individualism and subjectivity, laws enslave. They don't free. And yet James views God's law as life-giving. The Apostle Paul viewed it in the same way. And then so, so what then does James mean here? That we should behave as those who will be judged by the law that gives freedom. Is he suggesting that, that we must perfectly obey God's law, loving him with everything that we are and our neighbors as ourselves, and any failure to do so is going to result in condemnation as lawbreakers? Is he warning us that any favoritism failure is going to disqualify us from faith? And Answers, no, not at all. Rather, for James, as for the Apostle Paul, Christ came to set us free from the power of sin and death, from the power of the law. In Galatians 5, Paul writes, it's for freedom that Christ has set us free. You, my brothers and sisters, you were called to be free. The law isn't to be obeyed that we might merit God's favor. Rather, the law is to be obeyed because we are the objects of God's favor. In Paul's words, you who are trying to be justified by the law have been alienated from Christ. You've fallen away from grace. But by faith, we eagerly await through the Spirit the righteousness for which we hope. The only thing that counts, says Paul, is faith expressing itself through love. Faith works. And so we've been called to freedom in Christ. It's a freedom that we come to know by grace through faith, and which we evidence by our love. So, does this mean then, church, as, as true Christians, that we are only true Christians if we never show favoritism? Absolutely not. We're weak. We're sinful. We, we're fallen. But does this mean that God's grace allows us to excuse our failures and indulge our sinful natures by continuing to live and show favoritism? Absolutely not. Rather, we're to serve one another in love. 
We're to actively seek to live in conformity to the will of God, to display the character of the God to whom we've been united by faith in Jesus. And so as men and women who've been shown mercy, James says we're to show mercy, to be merciful to others. We're to seek forgiveness from those whom we've discriminated against and endeavor to eliminate such sentiments from our lives in entirety. So church, as we can consider our place today in culture, I believe that we bear a great responsibility to fight for gospel impartiality, particularly as it pertains to riches and to race. You know, understand that we're going to find very little encouragement to this end from our media, very little encouragement from the government or from any other of our world's institutions because, because each of those is out for their own ends. They're not part of God's kingdom because they, they haven't submitted to Christ's rule yet. But as we abide by Christ's royal law, we will be as salt and light in a world that is desperately in need of both. And so as we seek to live out the gospel, may we diligently treat others as Jesus did. To love others as we love ourselves. For, for everyone who loves has been born of God and, who, and knows God. Whoever doesn't love doesn't know God because God is love. This is how God showed his love amongst us. He sent his one and only son into the world so that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. So church, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And I hope and pray that each and every person here has come to know and receive God's, God's deep, rich, and abiding love by grace through faith in Christ. Because as James says, without that, without Christ, we face judgment without mercy. So I hope and pray that you know this love and this love has transformed your life. And so now, in seeking to love others, we are doing so by faith. By faith that we know all that we do is empowered by God's grace and is for His glory, not for ourselves. For this brings glory to God. Would you pray with me as we close? Father, you are a good God. You are a God who has so, so perfectly demonstrated what love is by sending your son to die on a cross for us. And this is the beauty of the gospel. Father, that there are those things which you call for us to do, to live in light of truths that we can try to abide by in our own strength, but inevitably will fail. For Lord, not a one of us can love our neighbor as ourselves. Not a one of us can 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 keep from breaking any of the laws. It's just not possible. Which is why you sent your son Jesus. Which is why James urges us to live in light of the royal law. A law which Christ, the king, fulfilled on our behalf. And therefore, God, as you by grace bring us to life and show us our shortfalls, as you lead us to repent of our sin, and to seek you by faith. Lord, you enable us to live in light of these truths. And therefore, our acts of obedience, our efforts to love others, aren't being done to merit your favor, but rather being done as expressions of gratitude for your favor, shown us in the gospel. Lord, and your spirit enables us, empowers us as we grow more and more into the image that we have been brought into union with, who is Christ. 
So God, would you give us the strength as a church to live this out, that we might not show favoritism, that we might be welcoming of all, not condoning of those whose lifestyles are different from ours and which are biblically described as sinful. Not at all. But Father, would you help us to see beyond the surface and to see all of those who are around us as men and women created in the image of God and so loved by you that Christ, you came and died so that they might come to know you. Father, would you enable us to see these realities as you see them by your spirit, to see the hearts? Father, would you give us grace to overlook hurts, disappointments, frustrations that we feel by living in a world where favoritism is rampant. Father, might this be a place in which the beauty of the gospel continues to be lived out. Might we refine what that looks like and be sensitive to efforts from our adversary to disrupt it. Father, might we fight jealously to show you our love by loving one another as you've loved us. Lord, and if there's someone here this morning who does not know your love and has heard of it for the first time or has been struggling to, to appreciate how all of this works, then Lord, I pray that you have spoken to their hearts by your, by your grace, through your spirit. Lord, lead them to realize that there's something that they need and that, that something can't be found in what they do or where they might go, but rather it's only found in you. Lord, would you bring life this day for your glory? Father, we thank you for the privilege that we have of being your children. May we live and, 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 and enact these things for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.